Well, good morning, and sure hope to be able to see you next Sunday when we gather. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis 42 through 43, the two chapters, and I've titled it, We Are Truly Guilty, and that is for sure the case. And so in Genesis 42, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now I want to read from Genesis 43 also. It sets the, the foundation of what I want to talk about. In Genesis 43, verse 1, it says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So, Lord, we ask this morning you bless your word to our hearts. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And, Lord, as we look at this whole area of our personal responsibility, I ask, Lord, you grant us a humility of heart and mind to receive the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would put it this way. God is in control. Man is responsible. And God put Joseph in control. We see that here. But I would also say God is in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. So he's in control. Man is responsible. But God put Joseph in control. So God gave Joseph two dreams concerning his future and the future of his family. God gave Joseph into the hands of his hateful brothers to be sold into slavery in Egypt. God is in control. God gave Pharaoh two dreams concerning the future of Egypt and the world. God activated a worldwide famine to bring about the saving of Joseph's family and ultimately the saving of the world through the promised descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then through Joseph, who joins the lineage leading to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Joseph, we have some of the most incredible types of Jesus. And we were, we're going to consider these in this series, and we have been. The title, The Faith of Joseph, Destiny. So God is in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. So this morning, please follow along in your Bibles as I read through these chapters. I'll interject a few thoughts. The narrative hardly needs much. And then close, I want to close with a quote that I think is very uh, helpful, as along with some scriptures, and we'll close with that. So in Genesis chapter 42, there's a famine in the land. God is in control. God had no intention of letting his people perish. So this is a matter of survival, as Joseph, Jacob is directing his sons. It's not a matter of better prices. This is a matter of survival. Jacob is very wealthy, but as we all know, you can't eat your money. And so what is more, more important? It's the food necessary. So in chapter uh, 42, verse 4, Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers. He said, lest some calamity befall him, as did with Joseph. And so the sons of Israel went to buy grain. So man is responsible. The family here, the brothers head down there. 
Joseph's brothers, this is where the problem actually began to begin with, that that God's going to be dealing with his brothers about. So here, it's more than a food shortage. There's a work that God is doing behind the scenes in a sense. Little did his brothers know what they were in for. So in verse 6, Joseph was governor over the land. So God put Joseph in charge, in control. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed before him with their faces to the earth. So God put Joseph in control. His brothers come and bow down before him. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but, but they did not recognize him. So at this point, if you're in Joseph's shoes, if I was, he could have done anything he wanted in a sort of a vengeful uh, response. And he didn't do that. Some give Joseph more noble motivations, but if there was a vengeful spirit, which I would say probably to some point, it, didn't, it was short-lived in the mind of Joseph. Verse 9, then Joseph remembered the dream. So he not only recognized them, but didn't let them know who he is. He then remembers the dreams, and it's been a few years, but these were such a turning point in Joseph's life. God gave them to him. He remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, And said to them, you are spies. (laughs) You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And I'm sure for Joseph that that flood of emotions inside that he's seen as he sees his brothers, he's exercised a tremendous amount of self-control. I think that he's, in a sense, making this up as he goes. Like, okay, here they are. Now what happened? And so there's there's some things that are going on in Joseph, no doubt emotionally. He's thinking some things through. He's, He's trying to keep his composure. Conflicting emotions, but it seems that Joseph is a very disciplined man in his mind. And they said to him, verse 10, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together, notice that, in prison for three days. So he imprisons them together for three days and gives them some time to think about it. (laughs) You are spies. And they say, no, we're not spies. He says, you're spies. You're not spies. You know, are you honest men is the question. Now, I find something interesting, a little trivia in the New King James translation of the Bible. It says, honest men, five times. Are you honest men? So that those two words, honest men, and that is the question. Have they come to a place where they're willing to be honest to admit the truth? Now, what I found interesting is this phrase is not found anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, there are no verses where honest and men are found together. And not only that, neither are these other couplets, honest and heart, not found. 
Honest and mind, not found. Honest and soul, not found. In fact, just four other verses have honest in them, and they're connected to scales and weights and measures. So what I conclude a little bit in my own mind and thinking is honesty is not the sinner's natural go-to. That honesty is certainly not the sinner's strength. In fact, Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked who can know. But notice, I, the Lord, test the hearts, I test the mind, rather, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So he says, I'm testing the mind. How are you thinking about stuff? So man is responsible. God is in control, but man is responsible. Go to verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison. That your words may be tested to see whether there's any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. I'm repeating that because here, man is responsible. Joseph is calling these guys to test them, to say, are you honest? Are you telling the truth? Now, as a Christian, early on, most of us heard about the testing of our faith. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Know that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. We understand that our faith is tested. But this is a testing of another sort. This is a testing of the guilty. In this manner you shall be tested, that your words may be tested to see whether you're any truth in you. Now, there's an interesting verse in, a couple verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells Timothy, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel... But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, here it is. If God, perhaps, God, will grant them repentance, what? To the acknowledging of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So, coming, in other words, realizing this is not what I'm thinking and trying to put, put past God is that a lie. And so, he's saying... That God may grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Listen, God is in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. So in verse 18, then Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses... And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. They were under the sentence of death, and they did so. So three days together in prison. What do you think they were talking about? I'll tell you. They were agonizing over what they had done to their younger brother some 20-plus years earlier. That's That's a long time to live with a guilty conscience. This is hardly some superstitious notion playing games with their thinking. This is the reality of what they actually did to their younger brother. The pang of conscience was unbearable. They had been suppressing the truth of their evil for years. So these brothers are now face to face with their guilt. And unbeknownst to them... They're actually face-to-face with the very person they were guilty of sinning against, their brother, Joseph. So it's a test of honesty. It's a test of truth. 
Now, physically, Joseph's brothers bowed down before him, their faces to the earth, not knowing that the truth was right there before them. No, no, no way of escape. Had they known, they might have said anything to get themselves off the hook. Joseph did not reveal himself to them. He waited to see if that truth of what they had done before God had penetrated anywhere past their minds. And so in verse 21, we are all guilty. <laughs> they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul. So amongst themselves now, they're having this conversation. We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not, and we would not hear. Therefore, they had, a, they had hard hearts, to put it mildly. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Hard hearts. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. So whatever means by which they kept their guilt under wraps, it's now coming unraveled in the situation that God's placed them in. And listen, it's because of, jo of Joseph's hidden presence that it will be fully exposed as Joseph is waiting. Mercifully, they would be forgiven by him. It would be months, and this testing would continue before being revealed. So this is an amazing story of how God grants repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So this is the beginning of something so powerful and so beautiful. There's a corporate repentance. We are, we saw this is what happened to us. We're the ones that did it. And then there's also individually acknowledging their guilt, their responsibility. God is in control, but man is responsible. And when we act accordingly, uh, when, we, when we sin, we are responsible in answering to God for that. Now, Reuben was less to blame possibly because he tried to rescue Joseph. But the question I have with that is, did he ever tell his father? I don't think so. So verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. This is so beautiful. Joseph, the one who was sinned against. Joseph, the one who just spent 20 plus years separated because of his brother's hatred toward him. And he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. Not only did he weep, he returned and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Now it's possible with Simeon, he might have been the ringleader in hating Joseph to begin with. So he turns away from them and wept. He returns them again and talks with them. How hard would that be to do and not, you know, give himself up? And then he releases all of them except Simeon. Then Joseph gave a command, verse 25, to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus, notice, he did for them. So they loaded their donkey with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? But then, now it seems like things are getting worse and worse, not better. Their hearts are failing them. They're afraid. Now notice, let's go on, verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan. So they arrived back home and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. 
But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, But by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you, that you, and you may trade in the land. So then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, here it goes, it's just getting worse. They were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. What a classic phrase. Jacob's saying, Things are only getting worse and worse, and they're not going to get all things. Or again, if only he knew what was right around the corner. If only he knew the things that this was leading to. If only he could see a little further down the road. But like Jacob, we too, we can't see down the road. But let me say to you, God is in control. Man is responsible, but God sent Jesus to save us. God sent Jesus to save us. And sometimes it may be hidden. We may not see that, but that's the truth. And so verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons. Now, <laughs> nice try, Reuben. You're going to kill, kill your grandsons. But what he's doing here is he's putting himself in a place of responsibility before his father. Important. Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him, in, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him, just like with Joseph, if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So there's sorrow, there's fear, there's anguish here. Uh, verse, now chapter 43 again. Same, same, God's in control. Man is responsible. God sent Joseph God put him in control over this whole situation. So Jacob remains determined that Benjamin's not going to go down to Egypt, but the famine was severe in the land, verse 2 of chapter 43. It came to pass when they'd eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down for the man. And that's, by the way, a key, <laughs> the man. It said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had, you had, you had still another brother? But they said, no, they had no idea what was going on. They, and they still don't really. But Jacob saying, why did you ever tell him? And they said, well, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? It's interesting to me. They have no clue what's going on here. But God knows exactly what's going on. God's in control. Man is responsible. God put Joseph in control. And so have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? So the man Eight times, verse 3, 5, 6, 7. And then the man is also Joseph's steward. Now, you might have a picture here of the Holy Spirit and the Son working together here as the Father is not there. Then Je Judah said to Israel, his father, 
Send the lad with me, and we will go arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. Again, he's taking responsibility. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them, now it's Israel, not Jacob, Israel. If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release you, your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. What a great place. He's hoping for mercy before the man, before Joseph. Last sigh, and sometimes that's the best sigh. The sigh of just releasing everything and saying, okay, just be merciful to me. A good place to be. That's where healing can really begin to take place. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. May God Almighty give you mercy. And so he's going to find out it's more than mercy. So in verse 15, so the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. So Jacob is praying for mercy before Joseph. They come down and they actually stand before Joseph. And Joseph, I'm sure, has been waiting for that moment again to happen when they would return. So then they, brought, they were brought into the house of Joseph. Now remember, keep in mind, these are the brothers that sought to kill him and then sold him into slavery. And here they are standing before Joseph. Here they are now being brought into the home, Joseph's very home, his house where he was there in, in Egypt. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then, then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which we was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take to take us as slaves with our donkey. They're thinking the very worst. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hands. So he's trying to make amends. (laughs) And we have brought down our other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, interesting, he said, peace be with you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. No question in Joseph's interacting with his steward, his relationship with God, his relationship with his father, all that. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house. And here is again, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, 
Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And again, and they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. What an amazing, amazing fulfillment of the very dreams that Joseph had several years in his, in his teens. They bowed down before Joseph. Then it says in verse 29, then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. Can you just enter into a little bit of what's going on for Joseph? His mother's son and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now notice, his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So he restrained himself. It's not yet time. There's more that Joseph is looking for. There's more that needs to happen. But he yearns for his brother, Benjamin. And then verse 32. So they set him in a place by himself. And them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him. The firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. <laughs> Joseph's having a great time here. And the men were, looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from In other words, they had no idea this was Joseph. No idea what's right in front of them. As Joseph is testing them, are they honest men? Are, is there any truth in them? Have they changed? Has something happened? And through the course of this, probably around a year or so of them, Going, going and coming and dealing with these things. Joseph is putting into their lives these things to help them come to an acknowledgement of the truth, to help them come to a place of honestly taking responsibility for their sin against him and their family. And so he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's servant was five times as much as there, any of theirs, so they drank and were merry with him. And so now we see the brothers sitting before Joseph, and we're going to, this is going to continue in our next study. But I close with a quote from Dr. John Stott from his book called The Cross of Christ. A full acknowledgement of human responsibility and therefore guilt, far from diminishing the dignity of human beings, actually enhances it. It presupposes that men and women, unlike the animals, are morally responsible beings who know who they are, could be, and should be, and do not make excuses for their poor performance. Decision-making belongs to the essence of our humanness. Follow me. Sin is not only the attempt to be God, it is also the refusal to be man. By shuffling off responsibility for our actions, God is in control, man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. Let's not, and he writes in this book, let not, let's not let any snake tell us what to do, referring back to what happened in the garden in the deception of Eve. And he goes on, the Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man, male and female, seriously. As we have seen, Christians do not deny the fact in some circumstances of diminished responsibility, but we affirm that diminished responsibility always entails diminished humanity. To say that somebody, quote, is not responsible for his actions is to demean him or her as a human being. 
It is part of the glory of being human that we are held accountable for our actions. Then, when we acknowledge our sin and guilt, we receive God's forgiveness, enter into the joy of his salvation, and so become yet more completely human and healthy. What is unhealthy is every wallowing in guilt which does not lead to confession, repentance, faith in Jesus Christ, and forgiveness, unquote. I find that so, as I was just reading that just recently, our, by acknowledging that we're responsible, we are now human. We've been given by God this responsibility, and in acknowledging these things, it is all in enhancing and understanding a relationship with God that's different from all other of his creation. So I leave you these final passages. David, when he sinned against Bathsheba, it says, have mercy on me. When when he was found out, he said to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. God is in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. He is our mercy seat. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions because of the cross. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Ultimately, all sin is first and foremost against God. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David knew the mercy and grace of God through repentance. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. It's at the cross. It's what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. God sent Jesus to save us. God sent Jesus that we might have a place where we can confess our sins and God can restore and reconcile us to himself and to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, Paul writing to them, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. It's not easy. Paul saying, I had to rebuke you. I had to call you to account. I had to call you to be responsible for what you've done in your sin. I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. In other words, they received it. They heard it. They took responsibility for it. They said, this is what we've done. This is what I've done. For godly sorrow produced repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. I've never regretted when God has has granted me repentance, the acknowledging of the truth. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow of the world just says, I'm sorry I got caught. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. This is what happens through repentance at the cross. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, fear in a good way, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. How? Through repentance. Not through hiding it, not through running from it, but saying, this is what I did. This is what happened. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that, your, 
but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In other words, we were being true, we were being honest with God, we were being responsible for God, we were being obedient to God to bring it out and say, This is what happened, and there needs to be repentance. And you repented, you had godly sorrow, and look what happened. It cleared you all these things, it vindicated the whole thing, and now you have this clear conscience, and now you understand how God cares for you and cares for you. God is in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. First John chapter one, many of you are very familiar with these. Verses, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <laughs> what Joseph was saying, see if there's any truth in you. God will grant us the acknowledge of the truth. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, capital H, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, we close here. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, and I always point this out. He didn't say but. He said and, and, and. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God's in control. Man is responsible. God sent Jesus to save us. God sent Jesus to be our advocate. God sent Jesus to be our substitute sacrifice. God sent Jesus to be our savior. God sent Jesus to die on the cross and take the penalty of our sins upon himself. God sent Jesus to then be buried, rise again the third day, ascend into heaven that he might be our high priest, that he might be the place where we understand he's there. We can't see him, but we, we know he is there. He's our great high priest. And so that's what he's saying. And he himself, no one else, is the propitiation, the substitute sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. May we understand God is in control. Man is responsible. And God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this wonderful, wonderful story of Joseph. And we're looking forward to continuing as it, as it unfolds again for each and every one of us. So profound. So profound. Such a picture, Jesus, of who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And I think as, you, as we read of Joseph and how he dealt with his brothers, he didn't just execute them, but he gave them time to come to repentance. And then he invited them into his very home, and they sat before him, and he gave them a feast, and he, he wept over them even, them, even though they were so unknowingly, weren't aware of that. And Lord, we are thankful that your heart yearns in the same way for us and that you love us so unconditionally. And we see that demonstrated on the cross. And there, Lord, we have a place to meet you at the mercy seat, to receive the forgiveness of our sins, to be restored and healthy and whole again and understanding this amazing thing that you've given to us called free will, called choice. We can make decisions, and yet as we're not, if we're not responsible, we lose something. So, Lord, we say, please forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even today, even now. For your name's sake and to the glory of God.